Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Mount Vigil podcast. I'm Blaine. I'm Anthony. And Anthony, welcome back to the Mount Vigil podcast studio basement bedroom. (laughs) Thank you. I think it's been a month? Longer? How long has it been since we've recorded together? I don't know. My perception of time is deeply flawed. Deeply (laughs) flawed. (laughs) <laughs> Anthony is one of the few people who has embodied some of the more abstract philosophical conceptions of time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So he really believes we were here yesterday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I so, definitely enjoyed two full weeks of vacation between the last time we recorded and now, which included one week at the beach where I had some truly transcendent experiences and became more relaxed than maybe I've been in my whole life. So mm-hmm. that further skewed my perception of how much time has passed. More things to like about Anthony. He's maybe the only person I know who has used being buried in the sand at the beach as a way to anticipate his death. (laughs) (laughs) And commune with God. Yeah, that was like, seemed very peace producing. (laughs) It's also the grounding. Yeah, it's that as well. My family has been in Alaska in Wyoming, by the end of our separated by one week, two weeks of vacation, my three-year-old was begging never to go on vacation again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and my daughter this morning was really wondering when your kids get back from vacation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> She's like, ask Anthony, how long are they going to be gone? She's just feeling their absence from the city. Yeah, it's the uh, delayed gratification thing. Every time she wants to see her kids and can't, it's like Uh an experienced harm. That's cute. So we are nearing the end of our series on the capstone of the Bible, Revelation. What have we done so far? Where are we, as well as you know? I literally don't know how many episodes we've done thus far, but I know that the last episode, we just whirlwinded our way through the judgments, effectively. And um, we've been, it might be confusing because we've been zooming in and hyper-focusing on some particularly interesting word, doing a study there, zooming out and just covering chapters at a time. Maybe that's just a flaw in our planning. Maybe that's helpful. But our goal overall, has been to put forth what might be to many listeners a new way of approaching the apocalypse, the book of Revelation. And um, so mostly without trying to um, do a a 21, 22 episode podcast where we touch on every verse and every word, we are trying to just give this entirely different aesthetic, a different framework, a different posture toward the text. And impress upon ourselves and you, listener, that this text is for you now. It's for your life now. That's good. I just looked it up on our website, which we have, (laughs) and we've done three, and I think we're going to land on five with potentially a bonus episode. We introduced the big message of Revelation, and then we started, we've done two shows that were drilling down on Uh, kind of the big structural elements. Though we remind you again, Revelation is a literary whole. And so even 
very intelligent people have a hard time breaking it apart. But we went with, we borrowed a structure from Richard Baucom, and then we expanded it slightly because we thought, you know, certain things just deserve their own attention. And we said, you know, we're going to, it doesn't have a seven-part structure. We're going to work through it in, as though it had a seven-part structure, with the first part being a prologue, the second part being a vision of Christ and the message to the churches, the third part being the vision of heaven and the three cycles of judgments. The cool thing being both, so the messages are nested inside a vision of Jesus. The judgments are nested inside a vision of God reigning in human history, in cosmic history. And then after that, there is a distinct unit that's the fall of Babylon. And then there's the new Jerusalem and an epilogue. So actually a six-part structure because (laughs) after we talked, I, I did seven parts in the beginning, but we were like, we lose so much if we take the cycle of judgments which are God testing the nations in order to bring out repentance, bring about repentance. If we take those out of the context of the vision of heaven, you miss the point. So we put those back in and said, all right, we'll treat it as though it had a six-part structure, slightly less cool for biblical numbers. Now that we are to kind of the fall of Babylon and the new Jerusalem, we thought this is a great time to pivot Because both the fall of Babylon and the New Jerusalem deal with some of the big images in the book of Revelation, which are the things that people have questions about. And we thought, let's talk topologically. I was hoping to get to use that word today. Um, Let's talk about the big symbols, the big characters, like the mark of the beast, the... 12,000 people who constitute the army of heaven. Like some of the elements that people actually come to a a podcast on Revelation hoping to hear discussed. Who are these beasts? Who's the Antichrist? Um, What is the thousand years? Yeah. (laughs) And so we'll see. Uh, Welcome to Cigar Time with Blaine and Anthony (laughs) as we see how many of these we get through in about an hour. And then next week, I think I know what we're going to do, but I'm I'm not going to say because it could change actually. Yeah, it could be misleading for future listeners. Regardless of what we do next week, we will conclude or we will at least do one more episode on the book of Revelation in which we really share are like where this text meets our lives and how we apply it in our lives effectively. Um, before we move on, you mentioned cigars. We, we are in my in-law's basement right now, so, so don't worry. We are not smoking a cigar in your basement. But if you were, what cigar would you be smoking? Would you imagine oh, smoking man. for this conversation? That's a great question. This is an old one that was an Anthony Ashley recommendation, but it was the most recent cigar that I smoked about a, a week ago. And it was the Alec Bradley Magic Toast. That's a good one. It's so good. It's a great classic. I also have uh, My Father Garcia Garcia in my little Zycar right now that I'm hoping to smoke this weekend, but we'll see. Hmm. I think for me, it would be the Foundation Menelik, which is... I've heard you talk about this. Yeah, it's, it's shorter than your average cigar, but it packs a punch. 
So I'll be, I'll be in my imagination smoking that throughout this conversation. All right, Anthony, we have this gigantic grab bag. I almost wish that we had put them into a hat and just could draw out like one at a time. Okay, first one. But what is the first symbol element in the revelation that you want to talk about? I've been going back and forth on this and was going to defer because I couldn't make up my mind. How about the 144,000? That's this what com- I have this open. This comes up a lot. Yes, okay. It, it also comes up earlier in the text, so perhaps we can go somewhat li- linearly as far as the text is structured. All right, so they come in Revelation 7. Yeah. Kick us off. Okay, I think I'm going to begin with my summarized thought. Okay. Which is that there's a similar fashion. We talked about these two instances of John hears of something and then he looks and sees what it is and it looks different than you expected. Yes. The lion is a lamb. And in this case, something, an an interesting flip is happening. The 144,000 famously is a multiple of 12. And it certainly refers to things like the 12 tribes, the 12 patriarchs, and the people, the, the ethnic people of Israel, the Jews. And yet John turns and he sees a great multitude of nations. And so what we see here is a poetic and symbolic expression of something that's very Pauline, which is that those who are in Christ are now a third kind of human being. There used to be Jews and everyone else. And now the two are made one in the body of Christ. The Jews are still Jews, Gentiles are still, you know, whatever they are, Greek. And together in Christ, they are a whole new kind of humanity. And this vision of them coming in is very beautiful. When I first read this as a kid, I was pretty disturbed. I was like, oh man, what are the odds that like apparently only 144,000 people get to be saved or something? And like, this is me reading it at like, I don't know, age 10 or something. I'm just like, man, what are the odds that I'm going to get to be in that? And so that's, that was a pattern in general of like reading something and finding the worst possible interpretation of it. It's actually a great symbolic picture of all, all people in Christ coming together. What would you say? This is so good. I hope you have Ephesians open because you said it's very Pauline, and I want to circle back to that and make it explicit because we said that at one time we said that John does theology in a Jewish mode mm-hmm. that pairs beautifully with the Greco-Roman mode that, in which Paul does theology. But I want, I'm going to drill down on a couple things. So... In Revelation 6, you get the first time um, that someone who has been slain uh, for the gospel and, and, you know, followed the way of the Lamb gets a white robe. So, Revelation 6, uh, starting in verse 9 through verse 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe 
and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. And again, you think that it's going to be, uh, we're saved because we're waiting for the complete number, meaning God wants everyone to be saved and the patience of God is salvation. So he says, wait, that more may enter the kingdom. But the image of that is being killed. It's laying your life down. After that, that image of a white robe is going to link back to those who have poured out their life, Mm. whether in the most explicit sense by being killed or by the long-term pathway of following Jesus into the lowly place. Um, which is a very challenging thing. So you move forward one chapter, and you're right. You hear what's a military census, and it links to the military census in the book of Numbers, where every tribe has to bring out a certain number of soldiers. And yes, that number, 12,000, uh, being a nice round uh, millennium-related number of completion and perfection. And so he hears, oh my gosh, Here's the army of God coming out, and he turns, and you said it, but here's the verse. Chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. So he's just heard it being counted. No one can count. Mm. From every nation, tribe, people, and language. Okay, so he's just heard. It's Reuben, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, and then it's everybody standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. So they have this mark of following the way of the Lamb. And uh, one of the things that I really want to call attention to is, oh, two things. I'm going to get to where they get called virgins because that was another thing that freaked me out. That one, I'm so stoked to talk about. Okay. So maybe I'm going to talk about the the question. I love that there's this dialogue in this long visionary experience where John is asking some of the spiritual creatures, who who is this? What is this? And so, one of the elders asks John in verse 13, these in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. (laughs) And... Wonderful. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Okay. Beautiful pastoral message that gets skewed to be a scary, uh, bad form of apocalyptic kind of message. And so we say, all right, who are they? They are those who have washed their robes white in the blood of the lamb the lamb. They have laid their robes down. Well, we already worked through the seven messages where following the way of the lamb was not compromising in peacetime with the powers of empire. And that gets defined by Jesus as the capital G, capital T, great tribulation. And when I was working through Revelation in preparation for this podcast, it finally came home to me how kind that is, Hmm. how pastoral that is, where you say, man, some of the things that following Jesus is costing me are really hard. Even, we said last time, you know, even if it's like, I am having to surrender my reading list to Jesus. (laughs) This is an early element 
in the process of choosing the kingdom of God over this world? Well, Jesus names that entire process of death to self the great tribulation. And I think it's just amazing to say God sees our lives as epic and the life of the ordinary disciple, which is extremely demanding in the end, he sees it as extremely demanding. And so becoming a part of that great multitude is the tribulation that people are like, pre-trib, post-trib. I'm like, baby, you're in the trib right now. You're in the middle of it. (laughs) That's so good. So that's what I have to say about tribulation, but I want to just buzz right forward to virgin. (laughs) All of a sudden, these 12,000 come back several chapters later, and all of a sudden, they're flying virgins. What happened? Oh, man. Uh, They do. Can I first say a couple more things while we're here in seven? Yes. Uh, One, just to connect some dots, in 14.1, we get another picture of the 144,000. Then I looked, and behold, the Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him the 144K who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So the- Yeah. Yeah, go on. I'm sorry. If you're, are you about to say that this is, the, this is the anti-mark of the beast right here? Exactly. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, it is that. That's not what I was going to say. <laughs> uh, I'm, just, I'm just trying to like uh, go through my notes and put t- t- get together as many things as possible. A few other things. You mentioned a military census that was, you said it in passing, but it's, I think it deserves to be zoomed in on a bit. And it relates to a proper understanding of the ecclesia, the called out ones, translated as church, typically. The church is a political and military gathering. Every single time that you and your people gather in the name of Jesus, you are gathering for war. And this is a picture of an army being called out, this 144,000. Now, those of you who might have a bad taste in your mouth for this kind of language because you've seen this, this reality misappropriated by people who want to express war in the way that the world does through means of violence and oppression and, uh, and so on, that's, you, uh, you are justified in feeling that way. But that is not the nature of the warfare the church wages. And we see throughout this, this entire text that this army do not fight with violence. They fight by, in fact, suffering violence, and they fight by being transformed through the Great Tribulation, they, they fight by just fidelity to Jesus and so on. But we can't miss the fact that this is a, a military census, so to speak. Yeah, I want to say one more thing about this. I wonder if people can hear me typing. Uh, <laughs> Everyone in this neighborhood can hear you typing, bro. <laughs> Sounds like a machine gun. <laughs> um, it's that, to really drill down, The military census in Numbers, which is kind of the one this is linking to, is the calling out of Israel for what purpose? To take possession of the land and to make it Eden. In the new census in Revelation, the people of the nations are being called out to make the world Eden via the warfare of laying down their lives. So the stakes have been raised exponentially, but unless you really grab onto that military element from the Torah, you'll miss this picture, mm. which is that what is, the chur- what is the global church doing right now? They are doing the conquest of the kingdom of God, making it on earth as it is on- in heaven, and they are doing it by following the way of Jesus. Well said. Another helpful note here is that while the full the fulfillment of this number of 
of this people being called out is the church, both Jew and Gentile. I think you know there's a reason the tribes are mentioned in chapter seven, and this is a picture of the restoration of the twelve tribes of Israel. And there's a rabbit hole that I will restrain myself from going down in terms of who's on this list and who isn't. But because it'll come up later. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to briefly say something interesting. Someone's missing. Yeah. Someone's missing. Two people, actually. Two tribes are missing, yeah. depending on... So you you might... You probably, if you are you know, grew up in the church or are familiar with the Bible, have the concept, the concept of 12 tribes. But if you really look into this subject, you'll find that there are different lists of 12 tribes. And that is... Uh, that depends on whether the two half-tribes under Joseph of Ephraim and Manasseh are included as full tribes in any particular list. That also relates to whether or not Levi is listed, because sometimes the 12 tribes are listed according to portions of territory, which Levi did not get. This list is missing Ephraim and Dan. Ephraim is less conclusive, and it, either one is out, is by virtue of association, left out of this list for similar reasons to Dan. Or two, it is simply replaced and equated with Joseph, which is included. So Joseph is here, second to last, and then Manasseh, the half-tribe, his son, is here as well. But you'll notice, most, most interestingly to me at least, Dan is missing. And there's a lot to say about this. So, uh, I have Genesis 49 open. Do you want Genesis yeah, 49? Okay. This links back to something that happened at the end of the book of Genesis when Israel was blessing his sons. And this is where you get the messianic prophecy related to Judah. But when we get to Dan, you get a rut row. Uh, what does that mean? And it's 49 starting in verse 16. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned viper in the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider falls backward. For your salvation, I wait, Lord. Mm. For Jesus, I wait. For Yeshua, I wait, Yahweh, is the last line of that prophecy. There's another verse that's similarly oh, yeah. cryptic, Deuteronomy 33, 22. Dan is a lion's cub that leaps from Bashan. Bashan is the place of spiritual darkness. So... Yeah, Bashan, I mean, it's the other name for it is the place of the serpent. Exactly. So this is, uh, this is foreboding. Um, Dan is not included in the list of the 12 tribes here. Here's another in interesting detail, which I won't fully explain. This is more of a do your research. But uh, dude who went blind and pushed the pillars over. Samson. Samson. Uh, drawing a blink on the name of Samson. So Samson is from the tribe of Dan. Samson, you might think of him as a folk hero uh, because of the way he was taught to you in your Sunday school as a kid, but he's actually an antichrist. He's an anti-type of Christ. Throughout, throughout the, the whole of his story, he is he like, he utterly fails and is a negative example. Yeah, and his, I'm sorry, I just have to say that his name, Shamash, um, he's named for a pagan god, which is like all red letters, something is wrong from the beginning of this story. Yeah, and if you compare his story to Jesus, Jesus is the Christ, uh, Samson is the Antichrist at every turn. So there's also, throughout the Church Fathers, there was a tradition that the Antichrist, as in maybe the final fulfillment of this type that we see fulfilled multiple times throughout history, we'll come back to that subject, I imagine, um, there's a tradition that the Antichrist, 
you know, capital T, capital A, would come from the tribe of Dan. Uh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna drop this Easter egg, but I'll say there's a really weird theory about other reasons why Dan might be left out of this list that Dr. Michael Heiser, God rest his soul, put forth. But I, I just can't. I don't. I don't feel responsible in putting it out here. But I'll just say. If you if you're if you're a nerd about this stuff, just Google him. You know, go to his website. Yeah, he's got some transcripts and podcast episodes that that touch on this. He has a great commentary on Revelation, by the way. And there's just some really like, whoa, I I've never heard of that. Um, so that's sorry, sorry cla- to be too vague. Classic I, I from Michael Heiser. I can't go there. Um, uh, if, if we're not going to go there, what do people have to know about Dan being excluded from this list? If we're saying kind of the big ideas here, yeah. in your mind, what does this do? Great question, because so far it's kind of just a an interesting factoid. So how does this help you connect dots to our scriptures, and is there any other benefit to knowing this information? One thing that's helpful is to realize there is a pattern, and anytime there's a pattern throughout the scriptures, as a good disciple, you should care about that, because God communicates himself and his story and reality through these patterns. So the pattern is basically betrayal. And so you have the the serpent in the garden, you know, uh, falling away from the, the divine counsel. You have uh, you have Dan being rejected and falling away uh, from the twelve tribes. You have let's Judas as one of the disciples who falls away and betrays. And uh, this I, I, I this is one that I don't want to commentate on too much. I have more thoughts on it, but um, so my only real comment is the intro that I just said, which is these patterns matter. What does this show us about the way God's story works out? What, what thoughts do you have? If I'm going to make it as simple as possible, I would say, don't be the Antichrist. <laughs> yes. All right? This is, you and I were chatting recently, and I've been taking a really interesting dive um, into moral psychology that Jesus has been using to bring so much conviction to my own hypocrisy and self-deception and the instinctive thing that if I were to say the Antichrist is depicted in Revelation and the Antichrist is typological, there have been many, as an insider— most of us would not immediately think, oh, no, it's me. But that, the when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, the response of the disciples of, is fascinating because they do reflect it back on themselves. And they say, surely not I, right? We're not talking about me. And so one thing I just call attention to is you're saying betrayal is this theme that's worth contemplating, not mm-hmm. jumping to conclusions, but like holding. I think another, th- what this has done for me in realizing, oh my gosh, uh, there's this big message in the scriptures, which is insiders become the problem. And that warning is actually for us not to say, oh, I knew it. Fill in the blank. We all have no effort filling in the blank is an antichrist. Um mm. X person in the church, like basically uh, every single change of popes in your lifetime, if you're Catholic, <laughs> <laughs> or even actually if you're not a Roman Catholic, is like, oh, that the Antichrist is here. 
Um, maybe not, although there is definitely an exhortation just to be shrewd, not just in this matter, but all the time. I think the self-reflection back on what in me is antichrist, what in my own nature is opposed to the revelation of God in me, that's something that's immediately relevant to you in a way that uh, the metropolitans of the Orthodox Church are not immediately relevant to you. That is so good. That, that general sentiment of look within, uh, it came up for me in many of my notes for several of these things that we'll talk about, including uh, the triple six, for instance. Yes, and it's not Gary at your church. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's like look within. I knew it, Sue on the elder board. I would say some of our tendencies are one to simply see the outsider as the enemy. So the church should hate the people that don't know Christ in the world who are doing evil, or other denominations or whatever. Or if we do understand that it, that it often comes from within the group, well then we just attack each other and divide versus you know living in the way of grace and reconciliation and so on. Another failure here would be to realize that these things are sourced from within oneself, but then to just simply live in fear and anxiety and, uh, and doubt and so on, like, am I going to heaven? And the appropriate response is to, to realize that Antichrist can come from within you, and yet, instead of responding with fear and dread and anxiety, to turn to Christ with, with all the more uh, desperation and renewed uh, joy that he has given you his very life. Is there anything else? Well, okay, we were going to, I was going to say, since we're here, let's talk about Antichrist, but you talked about the virgins, and this is helpful. I don't want to talk about virgins just because. <laughs> what, what verse is that? We're going to say, this is uh, chapter 14, verse 4. 14.4. So, interestingly, in 14.4, do you want to just read it? I'll read uh, 14.1-5. Okay. Uh, because there are some things that happen that are just so alarming, <laughs> especially out of context, especially when it's like, these virgins have never told a lie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> these guys sound kind of boring. Um <laughs> You were picturing male virgins. <laughs> now, well, now we have. <laughs> I totally defaulted to the uh, Greek mode, and I'm like, they're all women. <laughs> <laughs> then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like the harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth, those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Mm. This verse is probably the number one text cited by people who claim that John is not only pro-violence and anti-Semitic, but also a misogynist, right? And it's an it's a incorrect interpretation. I'm saying he's none of those things. It's an incorrect interpretation to say not defiled by women means that women are impure or bad. This says nothing about how God views women. And in fact, my personal view of this 
number is that even though they're described as men, that they that the, this set of people in heaven, these uh, these this hundred and forty four thousand includes both men and women in the human sense, and they're all together. You know, Jesus talks about they'll be as the angels and so on. I'm going to read two quotes, and then we can talk about why this is such a cool thing. So one is from uh, a scholar, his, his name is Olson, uh, or it's a, a, a quote about his quote. So Olson argues that the redeemed 144,000 virgins stand in radical opposition to the defiled fallen angels mentioned in 1 Enoch 1 through 36, who were engaged in sexual practices with the daughters of men. So we're, we're referring to Genesis 6, 1 through 4. According to Olson, the 144,000 virgins of Revelation 14 are an anti-image to not only the followers of the beast mentioned in the preceding chapter and in Revelation 14, 6 through 20, but to the fallen angels of first Enoch. He also argues that by contrasting the redeemed with the watchers who are those fallen angels, John is actually giving the 144,000 the role of good angels. And here's Heiser from his book, Reversing Hermon. The theological point is that the 144,000 holy ones, which is what saints should be translated as, um, the 144,000 holy ones who fight the beast, the Antichrist, are counterpoints to the holy ones who rebelled and defiled themselves with human women. John telegraphs that these holy ones will help their earthly compatriots defeat the beast and rectify the impurity brought to the earth by the watchers. So these are the saints in heaven, who probably in their earthly lives weren't virgins and probably had told lies, but in their, in their uh, spiritual embodiment, the, the, the point is that they are not like the angels who fell. They replace the angels who fell in joining God's divine counsel. Yeah. What do you think? I love that. Yeah. I'm going to add a layer, but that's a new one for me. And it, I mean, it just fits. Oh, really? Yeah, I actually hadn't heard that. Um, so thanks for that connection. What, the, one of the layers I wanted to add is that ad- adultery, sexual sin, is the dominant Old Testament image for idolatry. Mm. And it is, it is a pull-no-punches image. And in fact, many of the places where it occurs— People will not translate it because um, it's so graphic. Um, I mean, there's like the gods of the nations. Sorry. Tri- uh, I don't know what kind of warning here. Um, Earmu- but if, earmuffs for yeah, kids. Yeah, earmuffs for kids, um, which is that they talk of the Babylonian gods having emissions like stallions. Um gross, um, unless you're a stallion. Um, <laughs> and, but listen to this. So here's Ezekiel works this image. Here's Ezekiel 16, 25, uh, which is, well, I'll start in 23. After all your wickedness, woe to you. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty palace and made your beauty an abomination offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. Uh, that offering yourself is literally just the phrase, you spread your legs. Whoa. Um, again, why, like, why is it being so in your face? Um, we're totally going to do the theology of the body next because having a good <laughs> theology of the body is such 
um, an important part of understanding why this is the image, but it is adequate maybe to understand that, you know, our bodies are and convey ultimate realities in God's universe. And in particular, our ability to make covenants and our ability to uh, complete God's mandate from Genesis 1, which is to structure the world and to fill it with life, which is achieved through the, the image of a covenant between a man and a woman. One time I was talking about this and someone had to jump in and say, now, single people, you aren't like less human. And I'm like, <laughs> did I not say the word image loudly enough? <laughs> um, this isn't, a- yeah, okay. People so, struggle to think symbolically. Yes. So a picture, a picture of the real human ability to create like God through covenantal partnership, ultimately with God, and ultimately as a group of people with God, the bride relating to the bridegroom. And so, in the beginning of Revelation, the number one image in the messages to the churches for idolatry is sexual sin. Uh, the teachings of Jezebel, for example. So you get here and you say, they did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. You have this link back to, did they enter into you know, covenant with the powers of this world and with the world itself, or do they enter into covenant with Yahweh? What I think is interesting is that you get this key image of they were purchased from among mankind, um, which is this redemption, blood of Christ image. And so again, um, neither the lie nor the sexual idolatry means that these people never sinned. It's not how the good news of Jesus works. It meant that they put up their hand to be covered by the blood of Christ and to become a covenantal partner of the triune God, and that in so doing, receiving his nature, it became a reality. Their purity became a reality. So it's beautiful to say they were purchased and no lie was found in their mouths, which is, I think, a double underlined teaching on the efficacy of the purification of the blood of Jesus, mm. not on these guys followed the rules, so we're fine. That's so good. I love that. And I love how those two, two layers go together. The the gospel, the importance, the, uh, the symbolism of uh, sexual fidelity and spiritual fidelity, and then the divine counsel fulfillment. It's all together. Yeah. Like basically everything in this whole text. There are many layers. I know that was something we've mentioned Scott McKnight's book, but I love a point that he makes is that these images develop in the course of a single sentence, certainly of a paragraph where it's, oh, okay, we're looking at this group of people and they are an alternative group to the rebellious angels. Oh, wait, but now they're functioning in the role of those who have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. Oh, but also, now they've been purchased by God, and to let those layers of meaning mm. uh, weave together, work together. That's good. And this points to an important skill, maybe, that we need to develop. This applies to many areas of Scripture, but most of all to the Revelation, which is we need the ability to add the word and 
to what we think something is or is referencing. And we need the ability, we need some mental agility. We need, I always picture, uh, when I picture someone engaging with the scriptures well, I picture them like a boxer, like Muhammad Ali, Ali, who's like, you know, hopping from toe to toe and very light and able to move quickly. So this triggers for me, one of my notes that I, w- I wanted to cover today is, tell me what you think of this. I see four layers of reality overlaid throughout the apocalypse. Okay. And, and so in many of the symbols, many of the images we get, multiple things are happening at once. And these include, so like for, for a given thing, like a, a star or whatever, these include uh, a reference to the spiritual powers, as, as we've said multiple times a reference to individual human powers, so a king, Nero, or whatever. Um, these include references to cities or nations or ethnos, so to people groups. And interestingly, the, you could read the entire text of Revelation practically, astrologically. That uh, And there's tons oh, of great mm. research done on this, but, but th- these things also refer to the stars, the uh, constellations. So cosmological and astrological uh, stories that God has told throughout the millennia that, um, so all of these things describe reality together. Yeah. So good. I mean, I, <laughs> the worthwhile trails that are opening up here. <laughs> what, uh, what, what next topic there are do you want to touch on here? Well, there, um, Man, we haven't actually exhausted these 144,000 because... Is there anything we've exhausted, though, in this entire conversation? Uh, so true. Go, go on. If there's something... Oh, well, I'm just going to say, they come back as the bride, and the bride is the city, and like... Oh, yeah. All these things, kind of. And then you get this, there's no temple, because the dwelling place of God is with us in his holy city, which is his people. So beautiful. But uh, I want to say, two things are like, feel... Like, we could go there right now. We're at the 42-minute mark. Already? Yeah. Jeez. We could go to Antichrist, or we could go to the Mark of the Beast, because you get the Mark of the Lamb in Revelation 14 linking, like, pulsating link to essentially the entire book of Deuteronomy. But which of those would you rather do? I I feel like the mark of the beast is going to be shorter than Antichrist, but I could be completely (laughs) wrong. I feel the opposite way, and that probably just represents our proclivities. Okay. Uh, Antichrist, we've touched on fairly well. Also, it's a word that's not in this text at all, though it's a type that is. Yeah. Um, you want? How about do you want to just say what you want to say on it, and and then we'll go to the the triple six. Oh gosh. Okay, what do I want to say on Antichrist, uh, which is not here, but the beast is here. Um, you, why don't you cue me up? My notes are less on Antichrist, so I'm going to just react to what you say. I'll say one thing, that the thing in popular consciousness that we typically are thinking of when we say Antichrist is connecting multiple images throughout the scriptures, which includes the man of lawlessness from Second Thessalonians, um, to often the beast, or at least one of the beasts from Revelation. There's there's another one. Um, what's the what's the third image? Men of lawlessness, Antichrist, and what? I, Daniel's beast, right? And, and beast. Maybe that's it. I thought there was another image. Okay, so these things often get put together, and my guess is there's some validity to that. But 
I don't have a lot of useful stuff to say about this because I feel like maybe it's it's all obvious. So no, it's not obvious. Okay. <laughs> no one knows. Uh, I found I was recommended a book only last year that was saying this. Here's the future. This is where this is going. And it said in its introduction, somewhere in Europe, there is a man who is going to become the most powerful leader in the history of the world, and he'll seem like a good guy, but he's not. Okay, that's a really common error, and I think it's the thing in terms of man of lawlessness and antichrist in people's heads, at least here in the West. So you, you could say a lot, and it would be helpful. What do you okay. want to say instead? I'll just uh, I'll defer to Polycarp, who wrote a letter to the Philippians, which you can find online. It's worth reading. And here's a quote from him. For whosoever does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh— that person is Antichrist. First John 4.3, um, okay, so he was actually quoting First John 4.3, so I'll read it again because I added my own words. For whosoever does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is Antichrist. And whosoever does not confess the testimony of the cross is of the devil, and whosoever perverts the oracles of the Lord to his own lusts and says that there is neither a resurrection nor a judgment, he is the firstborn of Satan. Wherefore, forsaking the vanity of many and their false doctrines, let us return to the word which has been handed down to us from Jude 3, in the be- uh, Jude 3, the beginning, watching unto prayer. 1 Peter 4, 7, and persevering in fasting. Beseeching in our supplications the all-seeing God not to lead us into temptation. Matthew 16, 13, Matthew 26, 41, as the Lord has said, the spirit truly is willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew 26, 41, Mark 14, 38. A side note, whenever I read uh, church fathers and other people like that, I'm always amazed at how they basically have the whole Bible memorized. Yeah. And they can just like off the top of their head, it feels like connect the dots. Uh, I think that's a helpful quote because it, it, it puts the, the Antichrist concern back on us. And, and we realize that anyone who is rejecting Christ or leading people away from Christ, etc., is Antichrist. And I think we've said this on multiple episodes, including multiple times throughout this Revelation conversation, which is why I guess I, I'm not like super energized to say more, is... Anyone who rejects Christ or leads people away from Christ is Antichrist. And then there are people that are maybe more significant, or not maybe, certainly more significant fulfillments of the type Antichrist. Uh, Hitler, Mao, Stalin. Um, <laughs> I'm going to stop there. Because <laughs> I, I want to start commentating. And I do believe there will be a final fulfillment of this type that might look more like what people are imagining. But... Uh, the real usefulness of this passage to the church today is not to speculate on what current political leader is the Antichrist or what Pope or whatever, but to repent and say, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Yeah. I, I don't really have much else to say about it. So here we are in, I mean, you just had a lot about it, and that was awesome. Revelation 13, the beast comes in. And it says, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea. If you are not just an ancient Jew, if you are an ancient person, you, you know something is coming out of the chaos waters and the de facto image for empires and emperors is beasts. Even their image for themselves. Pharaoh Ramesses III? 
um, had this interaction with a spirit where he was told, you are a lion among the nations. And it went on and it was this boast about the wild animal beastliness of one of the greatest pharaohs of all time. And so you say, all right, we know we're seeing some kind of earthly empire. And then all of the details about it are going to help you interpret reality according to the vision of Jesus. And so it's going to tell you a lot about the kinds of things that empires do and the temptations for people living in them. It has makes this epic claim of, because we've just had Revelation 12, which I can't believe we're not going to get to in this podcast, I think. Um, the war in heaven that was not before the birth of that was not before the creation of the world. Um, that's there. And then we get to this one. So the dragon's already been introduced. And in verse two of 13, it says, and to it, the beast, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Mm. And so, you know, some people call the book of Revelation a tale of two cities because it's the city of this world contrasted with the city of God. Here's our first big look at the city of this world. And everything it does is the anti, the opposite version of the city of God. So it's like what empowers the kingdoms of this world to establish their dominance through violence? The evil one, the original rebel who was there in Genesis is empowering human evil in empire. Mm. And then, listen to this, it's just so disturbing. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Again, these are uh, like pulls from the Psalms with the language reversed, but what, you, what he tells you is they're worshipping the dragon, and what they're doing is saying, who is like the beast? And say, hmm, have you ever been a part of a nation <laughs> that says, man, there's no country like blank? Have Blank exceptionalism. Um, okay. Have you ever um, been a part of a nation that glories like Rome and its military power? And people literally come out into the streets to marvel at it. I, I, you know, I don't know if we're on thin ice or not, based on not totally <laughs> knowing who's listening. <laughs> um, but I'll just say that I was a part of a con- two conversations, actually, within the past 10 days that were both just expressing awe and pride. We live near a bunch of military bases, and so we get things like aerial shows. They're called shows. Um, These imperial flexes where we buzz the city with all of the war machines, and it elicits a feeling of happiness. Um, And people turn out to say, wow. You know, greatest we, in we, the we world. We see these implements of death flying overhead, and they are marvels of engineering, and and in some way maybe express beauty, but mostly they're just they they represent evil and oppression and things that should make us say, "Lord, come quickly." When I see the, 
I don't know, Blue Angels or Thunderbirds or whatever fly over the city like we do every year. Those yeah. are implements of death and they do represent empire. And every kingdom apart from the kingdom of God will fall. Uh, what, what you're talking about gets me turned on because my reluctance to talk a lot about Antichrist is mostly like not not explicitly relating it to the beast and to this conversation of empire and Babylon and so on. But that, what, what, what you're cracking into here is actually maybe the thing most on my heart because I think it represents one of the greatest areas of unrepentance for a large number of Christians uh, in this nation, the United States of America. Yeah. I can already hear people's parents <laughs> who may have this episode shared with them. And God bless you. Wow. If you have listened to this because someone you know sent it to you, that's um, just a beautiful relational act. And our hat is truly off to you. But I do get asked a lot as soon as it comes time to like um, repent of our collusion with empires, you know, but don't you, all of those things. And I'll just say the answer to most of those questions is always yes. <laughs> which we've said before, don't you love America? Yes, I do. Um, aren't you grateful? Yes. I will show you my journal every day. Um, I'm so grateful to be safe and warm and fed. I am so grateful. That's not incompatible with looking at the picture of the beast um, and the Antichrist in Revelation. And there's a scholar... I don't have his name pulled up, but he's quoted in reading Revelation responsibly. And he says simply, actually, I think it might be Balcom. Hmm. Um, Whoever the cap of empire fits must wear it. And so if you read a description and it's a description of your context, you have to wear the hat. It's the same as like I'm reading the moral psychology of hypocrisy. And I'm like, man, this sounds like me because it is me. Um, and I actually just have to repent and, oh my gosh, being like, okay, Emily, I got to read you this thing and then tell you why it's me and then repent to you on <laughs> way overvaluing and just my contribution to our family and to the world. So we're going to, we get to, um, let's zoom forward to the fall of Babylon where you get the most complete description of what empires are like. Uh, so I'm going to jump there, but do you want to say more about the beast before we go to descriptions of what the empire is? What I'll say is that these various images, the beast, the mark of the beast, the, um, yeah, the, the great, you know, the whore, the, the city of Babylon, all of these things overlay each other. And they're different ways of talking about the same thing, which is the kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God. Also, yeah, uh, some, some of these famous cities come up. So Sodom, Egypt, Rome, and yes, the USA and whatever nation you're in, all, every other political system on earth that's marked by um, these, these traits of Babylon. Um, I'll come back to these traits after you read what you're going to read. That's great. I'm glad you're going to these traits. Um, so you get the great prostitute, which while being for sure an image of Rome, is also more than that. And then you get the relationship between these civic spirits, civic cults, empires, and one another. But this image is brutal. It is brutal uh, in Revelation 17. And I'll tell you why. 
Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came to me and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and seven horns. Okay. So, what you're getting right away is the image of Roman imperial power, and actually um, power down through the ages. We could go downtown and I could show you ours. Um, Is the emperor seated on the war horse. I mean, one of these survived of Marcus Aurelius, uh, this bronze statue of the emperor in his power on this massive war horse. And it is, I mean, it's like the equivalent of a president, you know, sitting in a fighter jet. You're like on this military machine. And so we roll in and we're going to see the symbol of the power of empire. And it is this adulterous woman sitting on this mangy, disgusting beast. It's a provocative image. I was trying to think of something you could compare it to. And I was like, I think it would be similar to if you took uh, Washington crossing the Delaware um, and made him like a homeless, drooling, crazy person um, trying to paddle across the Delaware on a pool noodle. Um, (laughs) Think of, can you imagine the offense if that image went out in the United States? The rage. Um, This is how provocative that image is. By the way, did you know that in the dome of the Capitol building, there's an icon called the apotheosis of George Washington? That's what it's called. The bodily assumption of George Washington into heaven. And it shows a divine council image. I'll link to this in the show notes. It's a divine council icon. And in the seat of God is George Washington. And around him are all the powers of the United States. So rather than being like, here's all the saints and angels, you have Lady Liberty at whose feet is a stack of cannonballs who is ready to swing a sword on this like cowering representation of the nations. So in all of the symbols (laughs) of the nation in D.C. and all the other nations are utterly pagan. The Statue of Liberty being maybe one of the largest idols on the entire planet. Uh, You have occultic symbolism from Egypt with our obelisks, and you have uh, Freemasonry symbolism all over these buildings. Right, and you could track around to whoever wears the hat of empire or whoever it fits must wear it. Just go around to other empires and expect to find them making claims about themselves that are profoundly pagan. And for some reason, most of them, especially uh, the USA, is constantly equating them, uh, most of them are constantly equating themselves with Rome. So we have explicitly Roman uh, architecture and aesthetic all over the capital. Go on. Yeah. So then you start to get this description. Do you want to say anything from... McKnight has great work on this, on the spirit, on Roma and uh, the whore of Babylon being a representation of essentially the civic spirit. They had Roma and Rome. We have Lady Liberty or something related here in the empire that is the United States, but it's taking this uh, the incarnation of the civic cult, 
whatever the spirit is that we say unites us Mm -hmm. and displaying it as a seditious spirit that by being conveyed as an adulterer cues you in that it leads you further from God deeper into darkness. I'll just say that participation in civic religion, while it might be in secularist terms, is in no is unequivocally spiritual, and you are participating in the worship of rebellious powers. Here we go. Finally, finally starting to lose the rest of the listeners. <laughs> um, what I was going to call attention to is those traits, which you had mentioned having pulled up. Yeah. So let's go there because you get all these images um, that give you a roadmap for are you in an empire? And it's kind of like, I mean, there are really good books out there that are like, are you in a manipulative relationship? It's like, okay, well, mm-hmm. do you regularly feel fear, obligation, and guilt? If so, you are. Um, or it's like, wait, am I in a cult and be like, okay, well, let me just give you a checklist because it can, your own situation is the hardest one to identify, right? Mm. It's why we need the help of like, give me a list of, am I depressed? And be like, well, are you feeling? That's good. So if you check these boxes, if you check (laughs) three or more of these boxes, you are in Babylon. Exactly. So what are the boxes the book of Revelation gives you? Exactly. So is your society, your culture, your nation anti-God? Now, your politicians might you know, reference God and pretend to be religious or whatever um, by, for the sake of winning votes, but is it explicitly and, and in a lived-out way anti-God? Is it opulent? So is there, um, is there extravagant wealth and a celebration of, of, of com- comfort and riches and of you know, controlling the resources of the earth. Is there arrogance? Is your nation marked by murderousness? This includes killing and war, but also things like abortion and uh, just death of, of mankind at scale. Idolatry. Is this something you see in your nation? Whether it be the less obvious idolatry of uh, just anything that becomes a god or explicit idolatry like the symbols that we were mentioning earlier. Is your nation marked by militarism? So there were 108 million humans killed in wars in the 20th century. And, I'll, and my, my, my note on this is that we're not called to be realists about stuff like this, to justify everything because of realism. We're called to be otherworldly as followers of Christ and representatives of the, the coming kingdom. So uh, for all of these things, Stop trying to justify them and do you check the box of militarism? What about economic exploitation? Um, you might think not because you think that Western liberal democratic capitalism is the you know is heaven on earth. But can you look around and see economic ex- exploitation? Uh, look at you know how our country treats the rest of the world, how any nation treats the rest of the world and their own people, the poor. Um, Every dollar being a debt, the evils of poor fiscal management, monetary management, and so on. And finally, oppression. So are people oppressed? And this includes uh, imprisonment. This includes uh, spiritual oppression, uh, oppression of the people of God, oppression of other nations. So if you've checked three or more of these boxes, I'm, I'm just saying three, but uh, you might be in Babylon. 
Yes. Now, we don't say this with glee. Your point earlier about being grateful, I simultaneously believe, I'm just going to be super straightforward here for a second. I simultaneously believe that the United States of America is just unequivocally, so obviously, Rome, Babylon, Egypt, and that we have a lot to repent of as we wreak havoc throughout the world. I also share your gratefulness. I'm grateful for all the things that I've been given, and there you, you can identify good things about our nation as well. And I, I always liken the posture that we're not recommending to being the ungrateful teenager who hates their parents. Once you're a teenager, you start realizing that your parents are flawed and deeply flawed and that they're human. And you, uh, you might have found that when that happened, you began to hate them and you want to leave your family. Um, now, this is not <laughs> a perfect metaphor, uh, but, but, but it goes on, right? We're not recommending just uh, in pride saying like, oh, yeah, I hate the USA or whatever else. You are not called to hate. You are actually called to live in whatever nation you're in, USA or any other country in the world. In a humble, self-sacrificing, going lower way. We say this all the time. So you can live at peace in the nation that you're in and even be a blessing. And to Jeremiah's point, or, or Yahweh's point through Jeremiah, you can seek the welfare of the city that you're in, the nation that you're in, while, while being just completely honest about the fact that every single one of these traits I just mentioned are in abundance reflective of the state of our nation. Perfect. I love what you said because actually the human development metaphor I think is excellent. Um, it's like childhood. You love your parents because you think they're gods. <laughs> um, differentiation and adolescence. You venomously dislike because you see flaws, but you have not yet become a person who loves like God loves. Um, going on into like the long path of maturity is to deeply love um, flawed, broken, even profoundly evil people, never losing sight of the fact that they're made in the image of God while being able to not like or validate or condone human sin. Hmm. Uh, this is a very, as anyone will tell you, like this is where the rubber meets the road in human relationships and it's really challenging. Yeah. Um, which is like, it's also where it, you know, what's his name? Bernard of Clairvaux on the stages of development of like love of God. He's like, first we love God for self. We think we love God, but we love the feelings that we get from God. Uh, this can apply also just to other loves, which is like, you think you love, in quotes, like America, but as soon as America does something that you dislike at all, you get so mad. It's like, you love the feelings you get from your empire. Um, that's okay. This is a normal thing that I am well aware of in myself. And it's like, Oh, it's love of self for self, love of God for self, love of God for God, love of self for God. Um, and you, you become someone who is actually, who can share a table with anyone. I'm not this person yet. Oh my gosh. I'm so judgmental. Don't get me started. Um, I was reading on contemplation and this Augustinian monk was just talking about the sin of judgment. 
we're going to talk about this in an episode. <laughs> it was so painful. <laughs> I was like, oh man, man, I know people who do this. I do this. Uh, so you get a picture of, listen, if you are in this kind of nation, yes, you're called to love it. Um, serve it, lay down your life for it. And also emergency, emergency. This nation is going to want to give you its mark. What does that mean? Well, let's go back to the place. We're going to start talking about the mark of the beast now because we're in beasts and nice empires. And, um, but what, what does the empire want to do? It wants to mark you. What does that mean? Let's go back to the book of Deuteronomy where this binding on foreheads and holding on hands gets picked up and elsewhere. So, oh yeah, man. Little aside, speaking of rabbit trails, the law at Exodus and then the second law of Deuteronomy, there's been such, there's such good work out there on how the law sounds in Exodus given to a first generation that saw the acts of God and was personally acquainted with him. In the book of Exodus, God says, I will tell them my name seven times, Mm. meaning it's going to be the actual acts of the Exodus are a complete revelation of God's identity. I'll tell them my name, meaning I rescue slaves. I overthrow spiritual darkness. I give food in the wilderness. I dwell with man. Like you get a picture of what God is like. And the law that's given to a people like that sounds a certain way, if you saw it. Deuteronomy is given to a new generation that wasn't there, and there are changes um, all the way through on how do you keep the Sabbath if if you saw the acts of God? Okay, how if you're the second generation? And by the way, that's us. We weren't there. Um, We did not see the passion of Christ. What do you do? Mm. Okay, rabbit trail, rabbit trail. But, so in Deuteronomy, it's... It's this call to remember. Remember who I am. Stay grounded in reality. It's going to be hard. Um, I'll start in verse 13. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I give you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens and that so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord has given you. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And then he goes on, teach them to your children, tie them on your doorway, put them on your gates. Don't forget what kind of place reality is and who God is. Mm. That's this marking we're talking about, this emphatic remembering of, no, that's not how it is. God is the one who brings low the proud and protects widows and orphans. Well, John is very aware of this image, and he says uh, in Revelation, is it, I was here in 17, I think it's actually 13, 14. 13, 16 13. through 18. All right, 13. 
There we go. Beast coming out of the sea. This is the second beast. Yeah. Yeah. So also, here's the, the passage. Also it, referring to the second beast, also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. That's the passage you were going That to. is, yeah, yep. Okay. okay. And so before we get into the gematria and those things, what I just want to say is we know what this binding is. It is, an ori- it is a whole life orientation in a direction. And Yahweh has said, I want, a, I want your whole life to be oriented toward me in view of my story. The beast wants a whole life orientation towards itself according to its story. And then it goes on to say, and if you don't do that, you will find it very hard to live at peace with Babylon. Where do you want to go from here? That's a great, that's a great summary of what I would say is a correct interpretation and application of this passage. We'll, we'll get into some of the nitty gritty here. So the Greek language had no numbers. Letters were used and the Greek characters for 666 are Chi, Psi, Sigma, and the, the numerical value uh, of those three letters is what we're talking about. Um, the, and you said gematria, that's the art of turning letters, letters into and- numbers. So famously, Nero Caesar adds up to 666. And then beast or wild thing or uh, therion also adds up to that number. And it's, it's an opposite. It's the opposite of 777. And you can think about this as triple perfection and triple imperfection. Seven being triple perfection, obviously. And you can also equate that, that marking of 777 with having the name of Yahweh, your Hevav He, on your forehead and things like that, being marked as gods. So six is the number of, of a man. And so John tells us, you know, there, there's a very uh, specific f- purpose here that John has, which is to criticize the Roman powers in a way that is veiled so that his recipients can know what he's talking about maybe while not being obvious to the power the the human powers but obviously the the meaning of it goes well beyond that for us it's like one of the most important things to to understand in terms of what this looks like is that you can neither buy nor sell so is the thing i'm thinking about a mark of the beast well is it does it mean that fidelity to jesus will require suffering or difficulty in as much as we try to participate in the economy and commerce. So fidelity to Christ may require economic loss. But of course, we can think more abstractly about what this means for our lives. And certainly a parody of the seal of the God who lives. And uh, helpfully, there's a few places, two places in the Old Testament where the same number comes up. And like practically anything that gets repeated we or any anything that we're asking about in the new testament we should look to the old testament to see where it was so in first kings 10:14 it says now the weight of gold that came to solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold right after describing solomon's wealth it says now solomon loved foreign women so that that number comes at a key moment of transition in the in the story of solomon in which he falls because of his his love of uh, foreign women and 
Yeah. So it, so we're connecting some dots here, obviously. Ezra 2 um, talks about the 666 sons of Adonikim. And um, that name, Adonikim, is equated with the tribe of Dan, which we talked about earlier, uh, having no inheritance in the Lord. So to have this number on our foreheads is to participate with the dragon. It's a sign of allegiance to Babylon. And I, a few things I want to say about this. There's no chance that I would ever take the actual number 666 on my person. And um, I'll never let my body be chipped in any way. Uh, <laughs> this might be an inflammatory statement, but my own conviction is that I would literally choose death over um, taking the vax. I'm just going to leave that there. Um, so these things, I'm not afraid to look at those kinds of fulfillments of this number as things that might have meaning or matter. But I can't say that while I would unblinkingly die before doing those things, I'm, I, I am nonetheless easily swept away by the temptation of partnership with the ways of the world. It seeps in. And I think rather than viewing 666 as this binary where um, as long as you don't ever, you know, get that tattoo or that microchip or whatever you, you know, whatever makes sense to you, you're good to go. Uh, you should view it more as a slippery slope. It is, it is the path that leads gradually and then quickly away from Christ, away from fidelity to Jesus and toward fidelity to empire. And so we have people who are like wearing out their calculator, so to speak, trying to figure out how all the numbers line up, and yet they're missing the meaning of these numbers. And we have people who would courageously go to the guillotine rather than getting that chip or tattoo, but they still haven't repented from the political and economic systems of the world and into the political and economic ways of the kingdom. So we, you can go your whole life without taking a physical mark of the beast on your body and yet still have it um, as you submit your body and mind to the forces of empire, oppression, greed, as you participate in Babylon. Lord have mercy. Yeah. Woof. That was so well said. Little verb form uh, thing that you should know. Uh, so we've, had, we've seen the beast, we see what it does, and then it says, also it causes all. And first of all, English verb conjugations are slight, are not slightly, they're far less nuanced um, than other languages for several reasons, like, uh, yeah, it's just hard. Um, but what you need to know is that this is an ongoing action. So the whole point I'm making is that rather than saying, I saw and this happened, mm -hmm. what it says is it causes, meaning in an ongoing way, one thing's empires do is mark people, meaning like all of these things at the same time, including tell them a story about reality that requires allegiance. Funnily enough, uh, I am a fan of the Masterclass platform. Um, oh, yeah. And they just added one, not just, but they fairly recently added one for, for Noam Chomsky. <laughs> um, and with his opening line of control is the goal of all power systems. And it was like, no, duh, no. <laughs> um, no, but seriously, it's awesome. Um, by the way, I'm not actually a very big Chomsky fan at all. Good. <laughs> um, and, but that line stuck out to me is like, that the competition is always to control, to control 
the narrative, to control people, to uh, snack on the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and set up a way that the world should be. And if we accept these all as warnings and say, listen, Babylon is going to try to control the story that you live constantly. It's going, and that as a way of marking you. And actually, if you don't buy in, it's going to be very hard to participate. I mean, we shouldn't, we also should not miss here that buying and selling took place in the temple. Full stop. It's where you do it if you're an ancient person. Um, and so when it says so that no one can buy or sell unless he has that mark, it's linking idolatry, economic participation, and imperial participation. Which is unfortunate because we can say, well, I never go into the temple, but it's like, unfortunately, the link runs both ways. And so when you, even if it's like someone who seems like the good guy, sorry, friends, but if you like go into shields <laughs> um, and, you know, who's supposed to be in, you know, the, your definition of reality, the good, gigantic capitalist enterprise which we say, again, we're not on anybody's side when it comes to economic systems, um, vehemently anti-socialist and vehemently anti-capitalist. Only pro-kingdom. Um, yeah. But say when you go in there, you're, you are in a temple, and all of the risks of collusion with the powers of this age are risks for you. Does this mean don't shop? No. It means aggressively orient your life to be marked by God instead. And look back at Deuteronomy, like when you wake up, when you lie down, your children, this tracks very neatly onto the basic disciplines of a monastic life or a rule of life, which is like, when you get up, remind yourself who God is, sit in stillness before him. As your children are going, growing, tell them the truth about reality and Jesus who loves them in the middle of the day before you're going to bed. You will have to aggressively point your life in the direction of Jesus to avoid being marked by the beast every single day. Um, and it also, you said, I would never do these things. Yeah. It makes the basic elements of life and empire just, it shows how dangerous they are. Mm. And we live a long time after Marshall McLuhan and thing theory started to become a thing, like the medium is the message. and persuasive technologies. And it's like, guys, unfortunately, uh, iPhones and cars, both of which I have, um, so my front right pocket buzzing at me right now, <laughs> um, are persuasive and they define reality in a certain direction so that it takes a great and deliberate force of will to not just be fashioned into the likeness of the beast over time rather than fashioned into the likeness of Christ. All right, guys. So we are going to land with one more topical discussion, with, namely the millennium, and then we'll wrap up. And in our next episode, we'll talk about the new Jerusalem, the conclusion of all of this, and also a lot of our personal thoughts and applications and things like that. It hasn't been recorded but it's already your favorite episode. <laughs> uh, when I 
I remember the first time that I, I became pretty disturbed about the millennium. I had read the Bible through a few times as a kid, but in college, I took a class and I was given the, the assignment of journaling through the Bible. It was basically an entire Bible survey over the course of one or two classes. And when I finally realized like, yeah, th this millennium language is there, it's only, I don't know, a few verses, 10 verses or something, but it occupies a huge chunk of popular imagination about the meaning of Revelation, I was super disturbed because I was like, wait, 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 wait. you're saying the thing that the, the church is looking forward to when she says Maranatha, namely the return of Christ, isn't the end of everything horrible because it's going to be great for a thousand years. And then after that, Satan's going to come back and a bunch of those people that are in this new Jerusalem, this like heavenly place are then going to be deceived and fallen away and like that's just a really like ter terrifying story that it, like we're not safe you know you're not on home base yet and i i said this to my professor <laughs> and he was like yeah it does it does seem that way and i was like what does this mean and he said <laughs> uh, most of my professors were amazing I, I i can't remember this guy's name but anyways uh he, he said well i don't really know but i think the purpose of Satan being let loose one last time is so that the, the offspring of the saved people who were living through that millennium, they get the chance to go to hell too. <laughs> and I was just like, I bet basically my brain shut down and I just did not return to this subject again for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I, I... So what's it mean instead? Because... There are many bad versions that we could go over. There are so many bad versions, flat-footed... Uh, it's like you're not even trying, um, which is read it and then just make a guess based on you don't know where these thoughts are coming from or what the influences are. So lazy thinking, being like, okay, so through them in a thousand years. Okay, so yeah, oh, that's weird, but I guess I guess that's how it is. There's going to be a one thousand year period, like uh, I don't know, on ramp into the reign of God, followed by more terrible stuff. Um, Never mind, it's not a thing that's referred to anywhere uh, in the gospel accounts or in Paul's letters or anywhere else. Or in um, the church fathers. Yeah. So what is this idea instead? Okay. So simply put forth, we view, I'll say we, I view the millennium as a description of the age that we're in now, the age of the church, the reign of Christ being Christ is embodied on the earth in his church. Now, it's a, it's a difficult passage, and that raises some very legitimate questions when you look at it word by word here, but that's my intro to what I think is a better way of reading this. Yeah, I almost, I, I almost don't want to say anymore, <laughs> just because it's like, <laughs> okay, so a thousand is a big, round number uh, that while unlike if it were 3,000 or 7,000 or 21,000, um, it seems instead by not being those things to apply to all of human time and to be a picture of the great reign of Christ over history. First thing, it might be helpful to work through kind of uh, the actions um, or maybe not, because 
Satan being in prison, Satan being in not his prison. These, well, these are, this, is, this is a confusing linear action, yeah. unless you remember that it's not a linear action. Here, here's an encouragement with this view. And for many of you, it's like, yeah, I, I think that too many of you have heard of it, rejected it. Um, and this isn't like a, an unknown perspective on interpreting the thousand years. Um, anyways, an encouragement here is that I think some of the dissonance you might feel if you disagree with this view can be resolved by shaping one's imagination to see the cosmic significance and the glorious significance of the church on the earth. The church on the earth is the kingdom come and is Christ reigning on the earth. Now, just like when Jesus was here on the earth, you know, um, in the body, that he, uh, you know, the many his own disciples struggled with it not looking like what they expected, famously. We often struggle with Christ reigning on the earth, not looking like what we think it should. The, the church itself is broken and full of sinful people. There's still war and all the things happening on the earth that we hope to end. Um, but I think we simply, part of the reason the church struggles so much is that she fails to see herself in her true light, which is Christ embodied reigning on the earth. That's one major opportunity in this perspective. In terms of Satan being bound, uh, on, on the one hand, it might seem like he's completely free. Again, um, the powers still wreak havoc, and there are demons, and uh, war, death, famine, and so on. So how could Satan be bound? Heiser applies a very helpful, like straightforward interpretation of this. He, say, or, or he applies a question, which becomes an interpretive tool. He says, okay, well, if Satan is bound... What that means, we can figure out by seeing what happens when he is unbound. And when he is unbound, later in this chapter, he unites all the kingdoms of the earth and all the people of the earth, basically, apart from the church, in opposition against her, in opposition against Christ. So while Satan is not completely ineffective in this world, he is certainly bound compared to what that will look like. Those are the two big buckets. Again, I, I don't want to belabor this point either. Is there anything else you want to say? Well, I want to say because it does end, uh, I would work backwards in the whole like um, this last ditch battle at the Mount of Assembly, yeah. which working through really briefly, you can find great work in Heiser, great work in Stephen DeYoung on uh, it not being Armageddon at all, it being Har Moed, meaning Mount of Assembly. Yeah. Also, there is no mountain in Armageddon in the plain of Megiddo. But, which could either be Jerusalem, which would have the same meaning uh, because of the role of the new Jerusalem and the bride and the 144,000 in this book, or Mount of Assembly, uh, where God's will is done on earth. And so, this epic battle against the church, like a last ditch. Can we stop the kingdom from coming? Yeah. No, you can't. Um, and seem like the story is there's a last ditch effort that interestingly, there are not enough cues in this short thing to tell you when it is or what it looks like. So it's like, it could be right now. You could be experiencing the pressures that are the last war of evil on the church. It's good. You could. Um, straight up. You could not be um, and say, yeah, there's a, 
in Heiser's view, there's a restriction of the power of the evil one until the end of time. You're not called to look for when that is so much as believing that it's a reality and you're living in a time when God is reigning over the universe without having destroyed evil forever. That's our moment. God is enthroned. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and yet the age to come is not everywhere. Evil has not been destroyed forever. And in the passage of those qualities of time, there is an effort by the forces of darkness to stop the kingdom from coming that's depicted as a great battle on the Mount of Assembly, which is God's people. Mm. That may or may not be happening right now. It could be right now. But, and um, and how, so how do you live in view of that reality? You go all in for the way of Jesus. It's good. We've said so many times in this that like many generations of Christians have believed that that last battle is happening in their time. And many of them lived beautifully in view of that reality and were right because it was the end of their time. Mm. And it's just so like evil to use the faithfulness of the church to mock the church rather than to say, look at what they did. Like they thought they were facing the end of time. And so they established the monastic movement. Okay. I'll just say there's, there's a note of conviction for me. That's, that's not what I'm doing. Um, or they thought they were living at the end of time. And so they prayed in the morning and loved their enemies and served the poor and basically just said, we're going to take the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount seriously because the time is short. That is the takeaway. As is remembering that ordinary life in the season between the ascension and the return of Christ is described as the great tribulation. So whether you're experiencing the last battle on the church or not, you are experiencing the capital G, capital T, great tribulation, and it is very trying. It's so good. Another, my, my last thought here is that if you're wondering about this resurrection language, another way to further conform our imaginations is to come to realize that in Christ, we have experienced the first resurrection. Uh, Paul in Ephesians says, I want to say chapter two, he says, um, God made, co-made you alive in Christ. And this resurrection language applies to you because you've experienced the spiritual revelation. Now, one time you were dead, maybe not in your body, but in your spirit. And by faithfulness and uh, by allegiance and faith in Christ, you have been resurrected. And we look forward to the resurrection of the body, but we celebrate resurrection as a current quality of life and experience now. So good. All right. Next week, I'm sorry if we didn't talk about your big question from Revelation. You can write in and we may. <laughs> uh, get we will certainly get back to you eventually. Um, but next week, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the new Jerusalem and the final marriage of heaven and earth. And then we're going to talk about the way we experience the book of Revelation bringing conviction and change in our lives and how it can feel on the ground, in the dirt, to live at peace with Babylon while not being changed. It's not easy. But for the end of this episode, 
I don't know what we have for the end of this. <laughs> Here's one encouragement going back to some of this political discussion stuff that some of you, you know, might find super offensive. Um, some of you might find it tempting as a, tempting you into pride or some sort of uh, fleshly response to recognizing that our nation, whatever nation you're in, is probably an, ex an expression of Babylon. Um, an encouragement here. There, the two, two of the paths that the world will try to pull you toward, I think are both opposite beats in what I call the dialectic of destruction. And those are conservation and revolution. So one, conservation being fidelity and faithfulness and seeing the nation, the, the human nation, as being an expression of heaven, of God's kingdom. And so your goal is to preserve that, whatever, whatever vision of the good your imagination is formed around. The revolutionary approach is to see the evils of the nation and to, you know, toward whatever sort of amorphous utopia um, no place masking as heaven or as Eden in that direction to pursue the path of revelation, which only brings more death and destruction. Neither of these paths are the, the way of Christ. And so the thing that we're called to is to seek first the kingdom of God. And we'll talk a lot more again in our next episode about what that looks like in our own lives. But the, the encouragement here is if you, if you, don't, if you aren't able to admit or to see that life in empire, life in Babylon is, is your context, um, then one, you're not able to repent. And you're not able then to see that you're currently experiencing the Great Tribulation. And the cost of that is that you, you aren't able to be comforted. It, it is difficult and oppressive and trying and wearying to live in Babylon. Like every day, just by virtue of the temptations of the world is a form of suffering. It's being tempted is a form of suffering. And you need succor, you need help, you need comfort. And so one of the benefits of, of calling evil evil and um, of repenting is that there's comfort in that context, because we can turn to Jesus, we can say, Holy Spirit, um, restore my soul. All the things that, all, all, the, uh, all the sources of help and comfort that are available in Christ become available to you in this place that you didn't even realize maybe was a true form of tribulation and suffering. So I don't want to end on the word suffering, so I'll say that Christ is here for you, and he fills you with his life and revitalizes you so that every day doesn't feel like death by a thousand cuts, but you can be renewed and given the power and strength that you need to be faithful unto the end of your life or unto the return of Christ. It's so good. Something interesting happens after the 144,000 do their thing that we talked about in Revelation 14, which is messages of these angels. I love the first one. So Revelation 14, starting verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel, with eternal good news to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. What is that? Well, he says it. And he said with a loud voice, 
Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. It's an amazing command and encouragement to, I mean, there's so much baked in with fearing God and worshiping him. Uh, I would say it can be a great help to do a basic one, which is, turning your heart towards Jesus in love, letting his beauty fill your imagination, letting his worthiness baptize you, letting his spirit fill you. And so we can do that in prayer by saying, Jesus, we turn our hearts toward you. We name you as Lord. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to show us Christ to show us the king of the universe. Pray that you would fill our eyes with your glory. You would fill our imaginations, our minds with your beauty, with your wonder, that our bodies would be restored by beholding you, Lord Jesus. We worship you. We follow you with our whole life. We give you our attention and let you shape the stories we are living. We pray to behold you, to have you before our minds, to let the reality of you reigning right now over all powers on this earth bring rest and peace because we know that in you we are secure. We pray that the security of your kingdom would restore our bodies, would quiet the chattering voices, and give us your peace. Amen.